This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, today I'm going to be interviewing Mr. David McElvaney. David is the CEO of McElvaney Financial. We're going to get his take as to what's going on in the economy and uh, where you should be putting your money now. You know, if you listen to my conversation with Dr. Charles Nenner last week, and if you haven't heard that interview, it is now available at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Every Monday night at 5 o'clock, the podcast version of each week's radio program is posted, and I'd encourage you to go and listen to my conversation with Dr. Nenner. During that conversation, he made a rather eye-popping prediction. He said that based on his cycle research, and Dr. Nenner comes with a terrific reputation, He said that based on that research, by the end of 2021, the Dow would be at 5,000. Now, to put that into context, that would be a decline of about 80% from these levels. Now, I have been repeatedly forecasting that it is my belief that the Dow to gold ratio will eventually fall to two or perhaps even one. Now, what does that mean? It simply means that the Dow priced in dollars, will be about twice the value of gold in dollars, or maybe even at parity. So that means if the Dow went to 10,000, gold would go to 5,000, or perhaps the Dow at 5,000 and gold at about 5,000. That would be in line with what Dr. Nenner is forecasting. Now, I made the prediction of the Dow to gold ratio falling to two or even one five years ago. And at the time I made that prediction, it seemed radical. And listening to this today, it may still seem way out there to you. However, given current circumstances, it is now far more realistic. Now, I would be extremely cautious about stocks at these valuations. The economy has experienced a huge hit, and we don't know yet at this point the extent of the hit that the economy has experienced. Now, in the book Revenue Sourcing, and by the way, for those of you that have purchased my book Revenue Sourcing, it reached number one bestseller status in four Amazon categories. Thank you for your support. If you've not yet picked it up, you can go to Amazon and pick up a copy of Revenue Sourcing, or you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books and pick up your copy. In the book, I talk about how to navigate your retirement in the current economic environment. Now, back to this economic hit, evidence of a severely weakening economy is beginning to emerge. In fact, in March, 3.8%, let's just say almost 4% of all U.S. mortgages were delinquent. In May, that number doubled, more than doubled, to 7.76%. Let's call it 8%. And that's in just two months. Housing Wire reported that the rate went to 7.76% in May. And, you know, it's important to look at that in terms of numbers. 
because that represents 4 million mortgages in the United States that had payments that were more than 30 days overdue in May. Now, let's put these numbers in context. Mortgages that are delinquent in these numbers are alarming. But it's important to remember that this level of delinquencies has occurred while stimulus checks have been mailed to Americans, while combined unemployment benefits have been around $1,000 a week in many states, the federal benefit of $600 a week in addition to the state benefit puts benefits for many unemployed somewhere between $900 and $1,000 a week. That's significant. The federal benefit of $600 a week at this point is due to run out at the end of July. Now, my question to you is this. When all this easy money quits floating around, when many households cease collecting an additional $2,400 each month, how many more delinquencies do you think we will see? I would forecast that a minimum of 20% of mortgages will become delinquent. And I would say that 30% is not out of the question and obviously, real estate prices will be affected. Lockdowns imposed as a response to COVID-19 are devastating the economy, which was weak going into the crisis. And as I said at the outset, the effect, the full effect of these lockdowns remains to be seen. Now, there are a lot of different industries and institutions that will be even more adversely impacted than they already have been. In the last segment, we'll talk about higher education. Higher education is due to change significantly. Higher education has been funded largely through easy student loan issuance. The amount of credit extended to students now is about one and a half trillion dollars, and I've been warning of that market being in a bubble for a very long time. See, all of these effects have legs. It's a domino effect, and different parts of the economy will be affected. Maybe some of you saw the news story this past week that automobile, automobile sales in the European Union were down 57% in the month of May from the prior year a 57% decline in automobile sales. So we're just now seeing the effects of these lockdowns and what effect they had on an already weakening economy. And again, if you would like to learn of a strategy that can help you navigate this environment and help you perhaps achieve your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement, you can get the book Revenue Sourcing on Amazon. I'll be back after these words with David McIlvaney. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is returning guest, Mr. David McIlvaney. Uh, David is CEO of McIlvaney Financial. You can learn more about his work at vaulted.com. The website, again, is vaulted.com. And uh, David was on the program about six months ago, and... Uh, at the time, was quite bullish for gold. And uh, David, first of all, welcome back to the program. And boy, did you sound smart then and even smarter now. <laughs> Dennis, thanks for having me back. I'm glad we can continue the conversation. 
Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about um, gold. Gold and silver have both had uh, great years. Uh, what's your forecast for the rest of the year? Yeah, I think we continue to see the central banks of the world try to accommodate uh, and, and prop up asset prices. And the, the unintended consequence is that savers begin to question the value of their currencies. Uh, and so when you print and print and print and print and print, in order to prop up asset prices, as you might expect, those currency units are worth less. So um, to see it reflected in higher gold and silver prices remainder of this year through 2021, I think it's very reasonable. The IMF certainly is judging uh, GDP growth to be uh, a disappointment this year, and they've even lowered their expectations again for 2021. So the economy is not doing well. Asset prices are doing great because of this artificial infusion. And I think that's one of the primary drivers is this artificial infusion of cash, cash into the asset markets. Um, investors get it. And I, you know, when you begin to see professional investors take significant positions in gold, um, it's really not for opportunity. It's it's for insurance um, because they think that something could go wrong. And that's what we're seeing more and more of is savvy investors saying, yeah, this is nice. It's been fun, but I think I'll hedge my bets. You know, David, when you study history, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's been an instance where – you know, money printing uh, starts and then accelerates, which always is the pattern that has there ever been an instance in history that you know of that uh, this whole uh, pattern has been reversed? It's usually on the other side of crisis when the disasters already occurred from a monetary perspective and you've gone through something of an extinction event with that currency and then you have the the task of running a PR campaign to try to bring back confidence. And so uh, periodically you'll see gold reintroduced as um, the basis for security um, and legitimacy in, in a currency. And, you know, so then begins the process of rebuilding trust. And, and so, no, in that environment, yes, there's control of the money supply and um, some constraints uh, naturally there. But outside of the gold standard, um, what you have is, is one experiment after the other that has um, so far in, in, the, in, in, the, in the record uh, monetary history uh, it's been a, it's been a disaster one after the other. Well, and David, when you when you study history, also um, current an extinction event, as you put it, uh, and as far as currencies are concerned, or hyperinflations uh, have been pretty common. I think since 1920, if I'm not mistaken, there's been one somewhere in the world every couple years. Uh, although a lot of listeners are probably uh, tuning into this conversation, thinking that you know that can't ever happen to a first world economy like the United States. That's Venezuela stuff. Uh, what would you say to a listener that's maybe a bit skeptical? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the role that the dollar plays today, we are the world's reserve currency, most important currency in the world. And so it might seem improbable um, that we would go through something like that. And while I would put, um, you know, uh, an out and out uh, hyperinflation as a low probability, um, all you have to do is look at the British and the pound sterling uh, in the last century to see that when they were the world's reserve currency, they 
decided as a policy measure to reduce the value of the pound sterling by between 30 and 50% on three different occasions. So with a stroke of a pen, you got you know a certain percentage, a healthy percentage of your assets. If you were in pound sterling, it just lopped off. So 1931, 1949, 1968, those were years that were devastating. And lo and behold, if you look at what happened in the U.S., you could say, okay, well, there's almost an echo of that across the pond. 1931 was the British devaluation. We devalued it by 65% in 1933. We did not have to devalue in 49 because we had just become the world's reserve currency post Bretton Woods. And we were in a much better position following World War II than they were. 1968, they uh, decided to do the same thing. And by 1971, we followed suit. So there is, a, a again, I, I would describe it as an echo Whoever chooses to go first creates that environment of, of, of like, wait a minute, should we be doing the same? Uh, or are they going to gain a trade advantage? Do we need to gain that back? So there, there becomes a competitive nature to devaluations. And it wouldn't surprise me at all to see that. I mean, you've, you've got Europeans who, if you looked at the most recent numbers, had, uh, and, and of course, the, the, the engine of growth in, in Europe is Germany. Um, I think their exports were down... Sixteen uh, percent. Uh, their imports were down twenty-four percent, uh, or vice versa. I might have gotten those two numbers uh, mixed around. Um, so it's it, they are in a position where they're looking for uh, a trade advantage. We already have an issue with the Chinese in terms of trade relationship being on the rocks, and for that to become something that's transatlantic as well as trans-Pacific. I mean, this is this is the era we live in, Dennis. I mean, everybody wants something for their voter base, keep the constituents happy, um, or they go to the streets. We're seeing that in the U.S. We have the potential for that. I mean, this is a very uh, important week in Hong Kong because for the last year or so, there's been people going to the streets in Hong Kong and no more. They, they're aware of what it means to go to a re-education camp, what it means to be reassigned um, and moved. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, this is, this is a place that doesn't mind running a gulag as well as sort of, you know, all the trappings of capitalism. That is China. So where are we at and where are we going, Dennis? I, I think we could easily go through one of those um, sort of tit-for-tat cycles like 31, 33, um, like 68, like 71 uh, in terms of currency devaluations. And you don't have to go to the extreme of hyperinflation to be incredibly damaged as an investor. And if you look at real rates of return through the 70s here in the United States, that's all you need. It was one of the most vicious bear markets of all time. And in nominal terms, didn't look that bad. But when you factored in inflation, it was blistering. Yeah, that's a great point. So, David, when you look at you know central bank policy, specifically here in the United States, the Fed, uh, since 1971, we've been going through a series of boom and bust cycles, and it seems like um, each boom is maybe a little bit greater uh, than the prior one, but the, each bust is a little bit more painful than the prior one, and it takes more money creation to get the next boom. So my question is, do you see another boom in the cards and an ultimate bust down the road, or do you think that this is the beginning of... Uh, what we might look back on and say, boy, that was the reset. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. You're right about the nature of the booms being bigger, the nature of the bus being bigger. Um, on my podcast, I had a, a guest, Charles Calamiris, on um, some months ago. He wrote a book called Fragile by Design, The Political Origins of Banking Crisis and Scarce Credit. And he basically argues that none of this happens by accident. If you look at where the power accrues to, you have a crisis and there is an expansion of government on the other side of that crisis, and it doesn't really matter that the busts are bigger, because it, what it means really is a bigger footprint for the central planning uh, cohort. So uh, to me, you know, where are we going? We, we continue to see bigger and bigger government. We continue to see bigger, bigger issues. Um, and I, you know, does it ultimately end with a reset? I guess one of the things that that would assume is that there's somebody um, who will act like an adult on the other side of a reset. And I'm not sure that you have very many of those back in D.C. or on Wall Street. Well, if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with David McIlvaney. David is the CEO of McIlvaney Financial. You can learn more about his work at vaulted.com. So, David, let's just kind of pick up uh, on that last thought. I mean, at some point, if confidence in the currency is ultimately lost, and you're not maybe convinced that that's going to happen, if I'm hearing what you're saying, but assuming we get to that point, doesn't it force a reset? Yeah. So what happens with with these kinds of inflations is is you're flirting with uh, the end of confidence. And and if you have a total repudiation of the currency, you certainly can see uh, the death of the currency, and, and and it needs to then be reborn in in some more stable fashion. Um, but the the thing that's tough to to gauge, Dennis, is is the psychological aspect of it, because you can say, well, gosh, if we just print an infinite number of dollars, um, it's going to end in hyperinflation. And Dennis around the dinner table when I was growing up, you know, we were watching um, Ronald Reagan double the national debt from $1 trillion, uh, the amount that had been accrued from George Washington to Jimmy Carter, and he took it in one term to, to $2 trillion. And it was absolutely astounding. And I, I can tell you that there was a lot of, of, of you know, gut-wrenching, worrying um, about sort of the end of the U.S. dollar and what it meant to have too much debt and print too much money in the Reagan era. And, and here we are, you know, in, in the 20s now, 20 trillion plus and growing uh, with deficits this year, with COVID and everything else likely to, 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 to come in between three and four trillion dollars just in one year. I mean, this is all astounding to us. And it, you might say, well, the math is terminal. Really, what makes the currency issue a terminal issue is, is what's in the mind of people. So if we give up, then the dollar is toast. If we don't give up, then it can go a lot further than you think. And um, I think that's been a difficult lesson for our family because we, we never would have imagined um, getting to this point in, in history with as much leverage in the system. And yet it's just been normalized. It's been normalized. So what has to change is the psychology. And that is something that's very, very fragile. So how quickly can it change? New York second. In a New York second. Um, will we see it change? I, it's not that I'm not a believer. In fact, I think it's 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 a it's a reasonably uh, it's it's a re, it's a reasonable. There's a good probability that it could happen. Um, I, am I betting the farm on hyperinflation? No, I, I I'm not. Um, but in the event that it occurs, I think I'll still be well prepared for it.
So in the time we have left, David, how do you see this playing out? I mean, we have this whole argument of uh, will we see deflation, will we see inflation, uh, deflation as a result of debt excesses and, and, and the lockdowns. Uh, we're already seeing, you know, car prices falling. We're seeing, uh, you know, transportation services. Uh, you're seeing deflationary effects there. Uh, so how do you come down to this? How do you see all this playing out on the whole deflation inflation thing do you do you have an opinion i do and it's and i would say both it's both and that is not punting that is that is not a, an intellectual compromise um what you end up with is certain segments within the economy or the financial structure which are going to be defended in certain uh areas that are not um, so, you know, it depends on who owns the assets and what the domino effects are if you allow them to fail. We saw in 2008 and 2009, they were not going to let uh, Merrill Lynch fail, so they merged them with uh, B of A. What would the consequences have been had they allowed for a liquidation to occur? Would there have been further dominoes to fall? Absolutely. And so that's what they're trying to sort of, of guard against is where they think there's going to be greater uh, consequences and, and where they either, you know, you haven't played ball correctly from a political standpoint, or um, they don't see huge implications, or you're just not big enough, um, then you're at risk of, of being in that deflationary vortex. So honestly, your small to medium-sized business is not big enough for the government to get worried and to intervene and to save your bacon. Um, if you are in a, you know, if you employ 10,000 people, 20,000 people, 50,000 people, if you're a business of real scale, then all of a sudden they are going to care. And so it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag of, of who gets bailout dollar, dollars and who doesn't. Um, the, the inflationary aspects we'll see, particularly as we have in the last few years, show up in asset prices. You print money, and it shows up someplace. Um, and you're Richard Cantillon back. Uh, this is this is uh, around around the time of uh, the South Sea bubble, and 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 you know in that, in that time frame, um, he was an economist, um, did very well speculating uh, against uh, the French currency, um, and you know did did brilliantly actually. Um, had this concept of, you know, the impact of liquidity starting one place and then going someplace else. The Cantillon effect is what some people have called it. Um, and, and, and we have already uh, inflation and in asset prices. Would it surprise us in the years ahead to see inflation in real prices? Yes, but not in all things. Do you need a boat? Do you need a vacation home? I mean, there's places that if it's non-essential, don't expect the price to always and forever go up. And, and for the essentials, um, I think you do see, um, whether it's whiskey and cigarettes or toilet paper, um, a mad dash for having as much as you can get. And, you know, it's really weird seeing, seeing a small dose of that with people scrambling for toilet paper relating to COVID. I still don't understand it. But people do weird things as they scramble for real things when they feel like they're, they're, they're in a bind. Well, our guest today is Mr. David McIlvaney. He is the CEO of McIlvaney Financial. You can learn more about his work at vaulted.com. I'll be back after these words to continue my conversation with David. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. My guest today is Mr. David McIlvaney. 
David is the CEO of McIlvaney Financial. I would encourage you to learn more about his work at vaulted.com. The website is vaulted.com. And uh, David, let me just jump in a bit because uh, there are those out there that would, would argue that the wealth gap that we're seeing in the United States today, the division between you know, the, the, the rich, the, the mega rich and the poor uh, is widening. Uh, would you attribute that, as many would, to Federal Reserve policy? You know, I, I think there's a couple things going on. Number one, um, the Federal Reserve policy is is at least responsible for one half of the equation in terms of a boost in asset prices. But then you've got a whole group within um, the American culture who have not been able to participate in the 33-fold increase in stocks from 1982 to the present. If you're looking at the Dow Jones Industrial Average as a gauge, we were under a thousand points. You know, say 600 points. Now we're you know 25,000 and change. This is this is an interesting dynamic where you've had a massive increase in wealth, but not everybody got on board. Not everybody could get on board. And so now you look at two factors, which I think have kept people from getting on board. One is certainly education. And preceding education is stable family life. Without a stable family life, there's really not a lot going into the encouragement of finishing high school, getting a college degree, and then being in a position where you can earn enough to have excess capital to then invest and participate in what has been a glorious rise in asset prices. Has it been an exaggerated rise in asset prices because of central bank policy? 100%. 100%, Dennis. But the, the, you're really talking about two separate worlds altogether. The people who've benefited from it, no fault of their own. No fault of their own. And I don't think going after them to get what they have is the solution. Um, but you look at those who've not participated, and, and it's partially education. And it's partially the family unit itself, where if you don't have a father show up at dinner at the dinner table, if there's not a, a someone who brings discipline in and order into chaos, uh, you end up with very unguided and misdirected children as they head into the world, and they miss opportunity. And, and it, so this is this is, I think, a tragedy which needs to be addressed. But it's a tough one to address because now you're getting into conversations about social issues, not just economic and financial issues, where the numbers seem to be less sort of uh, you know sensitive and passionate. So let's talk a little bit about gold and silver again, um, David. Obviously, you're you're bullish on on both gold and silver given central bank policy. Um, do you see any point in the future that any country around the world returns to gold and silver as money? Uh, you know, if they did, it would be sort of an inconsequential country. Yeah, I mean, if if you and I say inconsequential, let's say the Swiss decided to do it. Um, you know, the Swiss franc is already strong. They retain a little bit of their gold backing, although they got mo rid of most of it in the last twenty years. Um, could they decide to go back to it? Sure, but the, the, the Swiss. I mean, I mean, they're best known for watches, chocolates, and cheese. They're not going to be the center of the financial unit universe, um, not going to happen. So, so if they did go back, um, it, it really wouldn't be of consequence for, for the world monetary system. So what is your, and this is, I understand, uh, when you price gold and silver in dollars, you're pricing it in fiat, but do you have a target uh, at some point in the future for gold and silver target price and uh, 
maybe an approximate time frame if you wish to be so bold? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple things of note, and you know, just following on that last conver- that last question on either gold standard, and if anyone would go back to it, it's one of the reasons we launched Vaulted.com was to allow individuals to put themselves back on their own gold standard, uh, to have a savings vehicle that allows you to dollar cost average into a kilo bar, a dollar at a time, ten dollars at a time, fifty dollars at a time. I had my kids in mind where they've been buying silver because they couldn't afford gold. And this platform allows them to buy allocated deliverable ounces of gold just in the smallest denominations possible in the form of kilo bars stored at the Royal Canadian Mint, produced only by the Royal Canadian Mint, with a guarantee that they're conflict-free gold, uh, the only guarantee in in, in the world of that nature. Um, In terms of the price projections for gold, you're right that it can go to any number on the basis of a destabilized currency. So if 5,000 seems like a high number, 5 million might not be high enough if we're talking about, as we were earlier, uh, a currency extinction event. Um, so so th- this is where, you know, history is a bit of a guide. You, you, you've got gold and silver selling in the billions and trillions during the 1922, 23, 24 German hyperinflation, but all you're really talking about is the devaluation of the currency. Um, I think on normal supply and demand fundamentals, you could see gold at $5,000. That's not factoring in massive rampant inflationary effects. That's just there's not a lot of it. And if you're going to get it drawn out of the woodwork, so to say, it's going to have to come out at a certain price. And I'd say three to $5,000, uh, let's say $5,000 max for gold. And if you're talking about silver in the same, um, in the same metrics, that'd be between $125 and $150 silver off of the current prices. So, somebody wants to buy, David, gold and silver, but they've never bought it before. Uh, and maybe they picked up on the news story that hit this past week that uh, there was a significant amount of uh, counterfeit gold that was found. In fact, as I uh, understand the news story, I think it was 83 tons of counterfeit gold that was actually pledged um, as collateral, and turns out that this, these 83 tons of gold bars were actually just gilded copper. So if a yep. big bank can be taken advantage of, um, how does someone know they're actually buying real gold and silver? That's a great question. And I'd say, first of all, that this is, this is not a, at all meant to be you know, racial commentary. But the reality is from China, if you want a knockoff handbag, a knockoff pair of Adidas, or a knockoff whatever, you can get it, right? So the fact that you can get a knockoff bar of gold, is that really a surprise? And, and if, if you are going to be buying and storing gold, would you choose mainland China? Absolutely not. So you're talking about an isolated geography where this kind of behavior is actually not that uncommon. Um, in, in, in the world of gold, you're talking about a very tight uh, supply line where provenance is very key. Knowing where the gold came from is critical. And so being inside that universe is really important. Sourcing is key. We've been in that business for 50 years close enough, 48 years. We started in 1972. And so to be able to get things, whether it's from the Royal Canadian Mint, direct from the Rand Refinery, um, you know, you're talking about getting it from original sources, 
Um, clearly, what was not done here um, is it wasn't gold that was brought off of exchanges um, with with the normal procedures in place of testing bars upon arrival. You know, when when anything comes into or out of um, a major uh, exchange, NYMEX, COMEX exchange, it gets tested. It, this this kind of thing can't happen in in a normal exchange. When they receive a bad bar, it's instantly found, instantly discovered, instantly discarded. So that's where you have to have integrity built into the system. And we certainly, after 48 years, understand what that's about. Who you're buying from matters. The sourcing of the product matters. Ask us any question about any product. I can tell you the history of who's counterfeited what and when and why. And you just have to know where you're getting your product from to avoid that. But I think this issue in China with 80-odd tons of of gold, it's a classic story of you really bought 83 tons of gold uh, from, from what manufacturer in China? I mean, it's just... It, 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 it's not it's not Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, or Fidelity placing a trade with this gold outfit, right? I mean, there's about three layers of chicanery, right? There's there's this never would have passed. This never would have passed an audit. So you know, you've got a whole host of things: sourcing, auditing, and all the rest. It's just it's a disaster. But somebody asked for it um, because they didn't do their homework and probably were convinced that this was the best deal on the planet because of price. Maybe they saved ten cents an ounce. Good for them. They got what they deserved. So David, in the time we have left, talk a little bit about your firm's uh, trading strategy based on the gold-silver ratio. Yeah, well, there's a whole host of ways to approach the precious metals market. We look at gold and silver as a ballast within a larger financial picture. So you're talking about stocks, bonds, cash, and metals all together. Um, gold tends to be countercyclical to stocks. And so if you go through a period of time where you've got lackluster return in stocks, lo and behold, gold does pretty well. And a part of that's just because there's not opportunity cost in stocks. And particularly in a low interest rate environment, you see the same thing with bonds where people would say, I'd rather have a million dollars sitting in the bank. Well, what good is it doing you today? Dennis. And that, so that argument against gold goes away. Investor dollars begin to flow into gold. And you know, when you're constructing a precious metals portfolio, this is where you have to ask yourself a basic question. Do I want a static portfolio or a dynamic portfolio? Static is buy the asset, see if it appreciates. The dynamic approach is what you're alluding to includes ratios and premiums and things that tend to fluctuate given supply and demand for a particular product. So we will play ratios between platinum and palladium. We will play ratios between gold and silver. We'll play premiums on particular products like junk silver, where you can buy it occasionally very close to the spot price for silver. And there's other times throughout a cycle where it might trade at 12 to 20% over just its raw silver content. That allows us to have sort of an inter-market arbitrage and add value for our clients. Again, after doing this for 48 years, there's some things that we can do that probably, if you're new to the game, it's just more difficult to do because you don't know that it can be done. You don't know the products. You're not, you're not following those individual um, data points on a daily basis. And so that, that's, that's value that we deliver to our clients uh, with, with, again, gold-silver ratio, platinum-palladium tra- ratio, and a number of premium trades as well. 
Well, my guest today has been Mr. David McIlvaney. He is the CEO of McIlvaney Financial. I would encourage you to learn more about his work at vaulted.com. The website, again, is vaulted.com. And, uh, David, thanks for joining us again on the program. Maybe uh, after the first of the year, we'll have to do it again. I look forward to it, Dennis. Thank you. We'll return after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You're listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thanks to David McIlvaney for joining me on today's program. You know, as I mentioned in the first segment, we are just beginning to, and just beginning to see, how the lockdowns imposed as a response to COVID-19 are impacting the economy. And as I said in the first segment, the economy was already weak going into the crisis. Now, there are lots of industries and institutions that will be even more adversely impacted than they already have been. In fact, I think we're just seeing the beginning of what we're going to see. And I think higher education is going to change a lot. Tuition rates were already in a bubble thanks to massive amounts of credits extended to students, like $1.5 trillion in student loans. So tuition rates will have to come down, and as they do, many colleges and universities will cease to exist. I know that sounds like an extreme statement, but Scott Galloway, who is professor of marketing at New York University, said recently on PBS that many colleges, and I'm quoting, many colleges are likely to suffer to the point of eventual extinction as a result of the coronavirus. He says that between one and 2,000 of the country's 4,500 universities could go out of business in the next five to 10 years. He said schools like Brown and NYU will be fine with $4 billion endowments. But there are lots of high-priced schools out there that don't have endowments. And as Mr. Galloway puts it, or I should say Professor Galloway puts it, they begin their death march this fall. Now, I'll be talking more about this in future programs, but the Fed sees all this and they're becoming increasingly desperate. Ron Paul, a past guest here on this program and former presidential candidate, got it right, I believe, this past week when he said that the Federal Reserve is getting increasingly desperate to jumpstart the economy. And you can tell that they are because the Fed's secondary market credit facility has begun purchasing individual corporate bonds. Now, this secondary market credit facility was created by Congress as part of the CARES Act, and this facility was to purchase as much as $750 billion of private corporate credit. So the Fed would print money out of thin air and use it to buy corporate bonds. Now, Dr. Paul said that this bond purchasing initiative, like all Fed initiatives, will fail to produce long-term prosperity. These purchases distort the economy by increasing the money supply and thus lowering interest rates, which are the price of money. The Fed's purchase of individual corporate bonds will enable select corporations to pursue projects for which they could otherwise not have obtained funding. In other words... Dr. Paul said that the Fed is printing money and buying bonds from companies that couldn't get credit anywhere else. And shockingly, under the law, 
that creates these lending facilities, the Fed does not have to reveal the purchases made by the new facilities. The Fed can print money and buy corporate bonds and do so in secret. I, for one, think this is ludicrous. Dr. Paul says instead of allowing the Fed to hide this information, Congress should immediately pass the audit the Fed bill so people can know whether a company is flush with cash because private investors determined it is a sound investment or because the Fed chose to buy the bonds of the company. Dr. Paul correctly states that the Fed could and likely will use this bond buying program to advance political goals. The Fed, for example, Dr. Paul writes, could fulfill Chairman Jerome Powell's stated desire to do something about climate change by supporting green energy companies. The Fed could also use its power to reward businesses that, for example, support politically correct causes, refuse to sell guns, require their employees and customers to wear face masks. Another of the new lending facilities is charged with purchasing the bonds of cash-strapped state and local governments. This could allow the Fed to influence policies of these governments. And the Fed will be printing money to reward spendthrift politicians that got these state and local governments into trouble in the first place. Does anybody else think this is wrong? Dr. Paul says it's not wise to reward reckless cop politicians, politicians who spend recklessly with a federal bailout, whether through Congress or through the Fed. Dr. Paul also correctly states These interventions by the Fed will not save the economy. As I talked about with David McIlvaney on today's program, since 1971, since the dollar no longer had a direct link to gold, there has been a series of boom and bust cycles with each bust getting bigger than the prior bust and the amount of easy money needed to reflate the bubble going up each time. Dr. Paul says this this way. He says, these interventions will not save the economy. Instead, they will make the inevitable crash more painful. The next crash can bring about the end of the fiat monetary system. The question is not if the current monetary system ends, but when. Dr. Paul says the question is not if the current monetary system ends, but when. See, the reality is you can only abuse a monetary system for a finite or limited period of time. At a certain point, as I talked about with David McIlvaney, if confidence is lost, it's game over. The fiat system ends. Dr. Paul says the only way Congress can avoid the Fed causing another Great Depression is to begin transitioning to a free market monetary system by auditing, then ending the Fed. Now, I happen to agree with Dr. Paul's comments. And if you think about his remarks, if you think about what I talked about in this segment, his remarks are even more unnerving when one keeps in mind that the Federal Reserve is a private group of bankers. We have a private group of bankers deciding which states and municipalities get bailed out. 
which corporate bonds to buy. The Fed, this private group of bankers, is now in the business of picking winners and losers. We are on a dangerous, slippery slope from which there may not be any recovery. I urge you to get the revenue sourcing book, and I know that sounds self-serving, but there is a plan in the revenue sourcing book to help you navigate the current environment. If you've not yet picked up a copy, I would urge you to do so. You can go to Amazon.com and search revenue sourcing, or you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books and get your copy. That's my program for this week. I'll be back again next week. Hope you got something you can use.